This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we join you remotely from the Latin American Studies Association Congress in San Francisco. And one of the key stories of this week has resonated from this very conference. It all has to do with the president of Cuba's daughter, Raul Castro's daughter, and a flap with the U.S. State Department over visas. We'll have more on that in our news segment and an in-depth interview with experts on Central American street gangs coming up later. But first, Vanessa hazes Gonzati is back this week, and she has our roundup of news from around Latin America. Danilo Medina is the new president of the Dominican Republic after winning a little over 51% of the votes Sunday. During his first speech, he recognized that the system is not entirely fair to small parties. To those small parties that also competed during this electoral process, I want to tell them that I know that they competed in the worst of conditions because we have before us an electoral system that favors the big parties. Medina, of the Dominican Liberation Party, won over Hipólito Mejía, the former president and member of the Dominican Revolutionary Party. Both parties swapped charges of electoral fraud, accusations that parties paid for votes or for voters to stay away from the polls. All campaign officials deny these allegations. Despite confirming some of these incidents, the Organization of American States says that doesn't taint the results and that the election was successful. Raul Castro's daughter received a visa to attend a conference of scholars in San Francisco. But that wasn't the case for 11 Cuban scholars going to the same conference. The approval of Mariela Castro's request to be at the Latin American Studies Association's conference has caused tensions between Cuban Americans and the Obama administration. The daughter of Cuba's president spoke about transgender health at San Francisco General Hospital and at the conference. Meanwhile, academics who have traveled to the United States in the past had no permission this time. Critics of the decision say that there is a lack of coherence in the administration's criteria over Cubans receiving visas to visit the U.S. Protesters in Honduras say they want the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration out of the area after four civilians were killed in a shooting. Demonstrators have burned down government offices and released a statement against the DEA. U.S. agents were in a helicopter with Honduran police officers when the shooting happened on the Patuca River. Officials say the helicopter was chasing a boat suspected of carrying drugs and that it opened fire on the helicopter first. In the exchange of gunshots, Honduran police killed two men and two pregnant women that locals say were not drug traffickers and that they were only diving for lobster and shellfish. The U.S. Supreme Court turned away a lawsuit asking for Puerto Rico to have rights to vote in Congress. The court won't hear an appeal from residents of Puerto Rico who seek to gain a voting representative in Congress. The territorial status of the island grants Puerto Ricans citizenship, but they don't pay federal income taxes and cannot vote in presidential elections. Their representative is not allowed to vote. Puerto Ricans have voted in referendums three times in the past half a century and have not yet determined whether to become a state, to be independent, or to keep their current territorial status. The director of the Secret Service defended his agency before Congress this week in the wake of the Colombian prostitution scandal. 
Director Mark Sullivan says the behavior of the 12 Secret Service agents is not an accepted part of the culture in his agency. The, uh, the thought or the notion that uh, this type of behavior is um, condoned or authorized uh, is just absurd. Sullivan's statement came after senators asked him how it was possible that this would happen without a supportive environment. Federal authorities are investigating the Secret Service agents who are accused of paying prostitutes in the days leading up to the president's visit at the Summit of the Americas. So far, eight have resigned, retired, or were fired. The investigation has grown to include 10 members of the military and two Drug Enforcement Administration officials accused of bringing prostitutes to an apartment in Cartagena on a separate occasion. I'm Vanessa Jesus Gonzari, reporting for Latin Pulse. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. We're live remotely from the Latin American Studies Association conference in San Francisco this week. And our first guest is Professor Cheryl Luchens of California State University at San Marcos, um, who is a leader here at LASA. That's what they call the Latin American Studies Association Conference. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. We want to talk about the controversy that seems to have um, focused everyone this week. Uh, controversy over visas, visas granted for Raul Castro's daughter, Mariela Castro, and then visas denied for various Cuban scholars that were supposed to be here as part of this conference this week. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this and, and your reaction and the reaction of other LASA members to what the U.S. State Department decided to do? Um, sure, I'd be glad to discuss the situation. Um, and first I'll say that uh, what, I, what I'll talk about is the response of the Section for Scholarly Relations with Cuba of the uh, Latin American Studies Association, because actually I'm not a leader in LASA as such. I'm the co-chair of the what we call the Cuba section. Uh, one of our principal objectives has been, since creation of the section, to facilitate the participation of Cubans in LASA because it's never been an easy situation. What's happened this year with the visas is, has been a surprise to all of us. And as you mentioned, yes, Mariela Castro, the daughter of Raul, niece of Fidel Castro, did receive a visa. And shortly thereafter, uh, last week, 10 visas were denied to other Cubans who were scheduled to participate in the program here. Uh, the 10 denials have, have the, the fact of those denials, even one would have shocked us based on the reasons. And what I can say is it just doesn't seem that there is any rational reasoning behind the exclusion of these 10 people from participating in what is an academic meeting. Um, thousands of people from around the world who specialize in Latin American studies are gathered here in San Francisco. But for us in the Cuba section and for many of our colleagues in LASA and many of our academic colleagues outside of LASA, uh, the dismay is that the reasoning, the logic of denying visas to people who are coming here for academic exchange um, just, just isn't there. And it seems to be uh, a puzzle that has implications. And I, I would say that the implications come from the history. Uh, beginning in 2003, there have, well, beginning from the start, uh, it's never been easy for Cuban academics to get visas to come to the United States. But it, after a golden period uh, in the 1990s when exchanges flourished both ways, 
U.S. scholars going to Cuba, Cuban scholars coming to the United States for conferences, for collaborative projects, to give lectures in our respective universities. Uh, during the Bush administration, there be, became um, it became increasingly difficult for uh, Cubans to get visas to come to the United States. The first episode was in 2003 with the Lhasa Congress in Dallas. Half of the visas were denied uh, to Cuban participants. The other half was granted. Then in 2004 in Las Vegas, all of the visas were denied, some 66 visas, uh, what we call a blanket denial. It was just every single Cuban who had applied to come to Lhasa. And this caused Lhasa to, to change where, where conventions were held, did it not? It did, and it took the next Lhasa in Puerto Rico, uh, which was an, you know, a year and a half after 2004, so it was in 2006. It was then that uh, when there was another blanket denial that Lhasa wrote a letter to Condoleezza Rice signed by 1,500 of the members and also took the decision that it, the organization would not return to the United States and unless visas were guaranteed, not, they can't be guaranteed, but unless there was some assurance that uh, there wouldn't be a blanket denial of Cuban visas. And I should say also that the visa denials uh, were not just Cubans, that you know, the alarm is not just about Cuban scholars. There were others that were denied as well, um, not nearly the number. So that Lhasa took a very firm stand to say academic freedom requires that participants in LASA be allowed to join in the collective discussion, the sharing of knowledge, and the decision was taken to move outside the United States. This is a free speech issue, is it not? It Just can you, can you get into that with us? Because most people think about free speech as being able to speak your mind. Um, academics are saying we need to be able to hear these other voices. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's an excellent point, and sometimes it gets forgotten as we're talking about um, the situation and what we can do. The, uh, there, uh, earlier in, in terms of U.S.-Cuba relations, one of the major steps in improving academic exchanges between the two countries was an amendment that was enacted that allowed the free flow of information such that periodicals, books, and other things, uh, art in, uh, produced in Cuba could be shared in the United States with none of the prohibitions that are in place. Uh, in what we call the sanctions regime to end, you know, to, to block relations between the two countries in, in economic terms, um, travel terms. But this free flow of information is part of free speech, that we, we need to be able to have information in order to, and to be able to listen to others. And so, yes, it is very much a free speech issue. Some people have said that this is a real blunder by the Obama administration. On the one hand, looking to the left and saying, we're, we're going to bring in Raul Castro's daughter and allow her to talk about some of the controversial issues that she wants to talk about, gay, lesbian rights, transgender rights, allow her to come into the country, but yet on the other hand, respond to the Cuban-American community in Miami and to some top-level Cuban-American politicians in this, and then putting these other denials on the table. Is this how you see it or not? Well, I don't think... I can't say that I know exactly what happened. I can't. Um, I can't say that that isn't what happened. Um, we 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 have been talking about you know what what exactly uh, promoted this apparent contradiction. Um, it, it it does seem to be a very capricious decision, and I would really. You know, I, I lament saying that there's a political motive involved in selecting certain individuals, uh, denying them 
saying that they're not allowed to enter to the United States because their presence here would be uh, dangerous to the security of the United States. It doesn't make sense. We'll wait to see if we get more information or a, a better understanding of how this could occur. Uh, any politicization of the visa process in this manner is, is uh, unacceptable. Some of your members have talked about um, sending petitions. What, what can be done to have a dialogue with the State Department about this? Is there any chance of that? Well, I would hope that there would be a chance to have a conversation because we like to think that our government is open to the citizenry to uh, be able to discuss the important issues uh, that are before all of us and that this issue, it would seem to me, would be important to the State Department. I know that the, uh, I didn't get actually get to hear it, but I read some of the uh, statements that the Obama administration, the White House actually had uh, ref discussed this in a press conference or in a press situation so that I know that it's important and it's not off the radar. Uh, the idea would be to write letters to the State Department, individual letters. Um, we're hoping that LASA will be able to um, take up an organizational position on this and, and share the great concern of the leadership and the members with the State Department. Um, perhaps others can visit Washington to um, raise the issues. Do you have any response to uh, Senators Menendez, Rubio, or others who have raised the issue of the fact that Mariela Castro should not have been allowed to come into the country? Do you have any thoughts about that decision? Well, listen, you know, personally, I, I don't see why she, she, she's here at LASA as an academic because she's the head of a major research institution in Cuba, an institution that does tremendous educational work. Uh, so I don't understand. It's the same issue of political prejudice that uh, if she meets the criteria for entry into the United States, which she did, uh, then she should receive a visa no matter what outcry there is from others who might not like her father. It, it really is um, extraordinary to believe that we can make those kind of moves and believe that the State Department would respond to that kind of a claim to exclude people who are coming to an academic event. What would you like to see going forward? In terms of the visa situation? Yes. Well, I'm hoping that uh, what, what we talk about a lot in Cuban studies, the normalization of relations, let's not make every situation which should be normal into some kind of a crisis situation. And the fact that 76 Cubans uh, were expected to participate, um, re receive permissions to enter, suggests that this academic event is a very normal one where Cuban voices about Cuban studies topics, uh, sharing with colleagues here um, is expected. Let's make it expected for all who are academics and not uh, apply separate standards that have no, that are capricious uh, to exclude some. It's very, very important, especially in terms of the production of knowledge, of new and better knowledge, that we have as many voices as possible, as much information as possible, weighing, weighing in and allowing us to, to do the thinking we need to do. Nowhere is this more important than the thinking that informs the U.S. government policy about Cuba and our relations with Cuba. Is it possible to have a normal or a normalizing relationship with Cuba in an election year when Florida is such an important state? Well, it appears not. It appears that it is not possible, um, although we hope, I hope, that um, that it would be possible. We, 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 on the one hand, might want to make it really clear 
exactly how Cuba is a topic and why it's a topic and how that topic has very little to do with what actually happens in Cuba and what our relations with Cuba should and might be. In, in many ways, academic relations, academic cooperation, uh, exchange activities, students going to Cuba, Cuban scholars coming here, uh, continue to be a very important a part of what should be uh, the diplomacy between the two countries. Well, with that, thank you very much, Professor Cheryl Luchens of California State University, San Marcos, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. I want to finish school. And then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our next guests are Tom Bruno and Sonia Wolf, contributors to the new book, Maras, Gang Violence and Security in Central America. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks very much. Um, you have probably the best and most comprehensive book about gangs and gang violence in Central America out right now. Very current. Please Tell us why you were influenced to write this book and what sort of response you've had. Yeah, well, because uh, through the programs I've done with the Center for Civil Military Relations, I've been going to Central America since 1996, starting in Honduras. And then I've been to virtually every capital of the so-called Northern Triangle of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, probably every year or every other year. And I've also been to Nicaragua and Belize and Costa Rica and Panama. And I saw over the years uh, in the seminars that we do with the military and the police and civilians as well, that this issue of gang violence, of of pandillas, of maras became more and more important. And um, the result, uh, I think the result turned out good. It's not the definitive work. Uh, People like the next person you're going to talk to here, Sonia Wolf has a you know a book that she's uh, putting together right now uh, and she'll tell you more about that so Sonia um, tell us about your chapter in the book um, yeah the um, I was responsible for the El Salvador chapter and it actually um, built on the work I did for my um, doctoral dissertation and what I did um, in the thesis was to examine um, the gang situation in El Salvador and specifically the policies that had been developed to deal uh, with the gangs and uh, NGO strategies that were aimed at promoting a different kind of gang policy. Um, If you remember, what happened in El Salvador was that um, what was called a Mano Dura gang policy was uh, was adopted, which was very much uh, repressive in focus. Uh, it was. It turned out to be ineffective. But um, what it did was to to ignore prevention and rehabilitation programs, and it did not um, respect uh, the rights of suspected gang members. And um, various um, sectors of society, especially NGOs, tried to promote um, a different gang policy that was uh, based on respect for human rights and that incorporated um, alternative programs, especially prevention and rehabilitation. And I wanted to know um, what it was the the, the NGOs were trying to do and why their strategies were ultimately not very effective, because the Mano Dura policies um, have essentially continued over the years. I want to get back to the Mano Dura 
policies and, and how effective or ineffective they've been. Um, but maybe you could help us with, with some of the basics for people who are not tuned into gangs in El Salvador and Central America. Um, these gangs are not just affecting that area of the world. They're, they're here in the U.S. too. Um, how did these gangs get to be such big transnational crime actors? Well, as you probably know from looking at the book, uh, we have a chapter in there on uh, Los Angeles, the Los Angeles, California, where, by the way, I was born. And the, the main gangs that we're talking about, and people use gangs, pandillas, uh, they're, you know, just the translation, and then the Mars are the, uh, normally the reference to the two specific ones, the Mara Salvatrucha and the Calle or Barrio or 18th Street gang. And Mara Salvatrucha, sometimes MS-13? Yeah, MS-13 as, as well. Uh, that they, they were founded, uh, basically, in Southern California. And the, the main Maras are internationally linked. They have, uh, you know, they have organizations in the three uh, Northern Triangle countries of uh, Central America, Los Angeles, uh, and supposedly, according to the FBI, uh, I don't know, 42 of the states in the United States. Uh, so they are all over and they work, uh, you know, they're very modern in the sense of uh, utilization of cell phones, the internet, uh, Western Union to move money around. So these guys are, and gals, but mainly guys, are not, uh, are not backwards. They utilized all aspects of uh, globalization uh, to their own advantage. So uh, you mentioned the Monodora policy. Some countries are still following this. Um, why was it ineffective in your opinion? Um, it was ineffective um, because of the um, of the nature of the of the policies. Um, essentially, what happened um, was that um, if we look at the electoral context, when the policies um, or the strategies were adopted, um, uh, it used to happen um, in the context of electoral campaigns. Um, so what happened was that um, the governments that adopted these policies uh, wanted to boost their electoral advantage, but they weren't necessarily uh, looking for an effective gang strategy. And we just so, saw this uh, in mm-hmm. electoral strategy yes. win in Guatemala mm-hmm. very recently. Exactly, yeah. So the, the, um, the, the kind of strategy was, uh, that was adopted uh, was meant to produce quick results. Because if, if we remember in Central America, especially uh, in the, the northern countries, um, the levels of crime and violence have been uh, historically very high. And people are uh, generally tired of the insecurity and they want um, the levels of crime and violence to go down and to go down quickly. Um, so what the governments did was to adopt um, measures uh, that were highly visible and that were, that were meant to produce quick results. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You need more structural measures. So Manu Dura involved um, joint patrols between uh, po- the police and the military um, area sweeps where um, suspected gang members were rounded up and gang members were uh, imprisoned en masse. So uh, the prison systems have been overcrowded for a long time uh, and the numbers of, uh, of imprisoned gang members also went up. In El Salvador, for example, it's about a third of the total um, prison population. Uh, Manu Dura was in, ineffective um, ultimately because the, uh, one of the objectives was to bring uh, the homicide levels down, but that did not happen. The homicide levels went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also um, because gang members were concentrated um, in, uh, in prisons that were segregated by gang affiliation, gang members from different parts of the country could uh, come together and they could um, 
uh, strengthen the internal structure of the gangs, but also um, spend more time on, on planning and directing crimes that gang members based in the streets did then execute. And also because um, more gang members um, were imprisoned, there was also a need for gang members to raise more funds to, to support their imprisoned peers. So the number of extortions um, increased uh, substantially. Well, we just saw this in El Salvador. This became an issue in El Salvador, the issue of imprisonment of gang members. Um, do you have some insights on this, on this particular incident that happened there? The incident, you mean in terms of the truce? Well, yes, the, there, there was this truce uh, brokered by the, by yeah. the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, some people believe that the government was involved, that there was a quid pro quo, um, mm -hmm. peace treaty with the mm -hmm. gangs. The mm -hmm. government has denied this. Yeah, um, yeah. no, I, last week I spoke with the Minister of, uh, of Public Security and Justice, uh, General de Division Munguia Paez, about this. And the word that they used, that he continued to use, was not negotiation, but rather entendimento, an understanding. So the deal is uh, the following, uh, that the Catholic Church, elements in the Catholic Church of Monsignor and the papal nuncio uh, brokered a, a truce between the main gangs in order to drop the homicide rate. The homicide rate was averaging 13 per day and maybe on the weekends 25 or so for an overall average of 40, probably 45 per 100,000, which is extremely high. Some people thought that that was is, equal to what was is, happening during the war years, well, during the Civil War years. Well, in the United States, it's somewhere around five per 100,000. In Chile, it's about 1.5 per 100,000. So this is extremely high. So the idea was to, uh, to support a, a truce in some way whereby the gang members would stop killing uh, each other, their, their opponents, basically. And uh, now the, the, the way it was put is, well, one good deed goes, uh, will re be responded to by another good deed. And uh, so the leaders of the main gangs were moved from the highest security prison to a lower security prison. So there is a process going on, and the minister pointed out to me that they're also trying to uh, implement some legal changes as well uh, in certain areas of really high crime density and at the same time to develop a, an anti-pandilla uh, 500 member group of the, of, the, of the national police as well. So there's another a number of dimensions about this and uh, a lot of it's not clear. Uh, it's not clear because it's in the process of understandings and it's not clear because they're, they're developing these understandings with different levels of these organizations which are basically criminal organizations. So they're at least, as, as Munguia Pais pointed out, at least they've had some success, the first success uh, over 30 years and all sorts of people from other countries, uh, including the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, are going there to learn more about it. How far it goes remains to be seen. So you feel that this is a success? Well, they think it's a success. At least it dropped the 13 per day down to four or five homicides per day. So in, in those terms, it's a success. Now, whether this can be uh, built on, whether this will be continuing, or are the dynamics of the gangs and the governments them, the, themselves, or the government itself, but it will, I suspect, be copied in probably in Honduras. Uh, 
that it remains to be seen whether whether it works or not. Well, that's all the time we oh. have today. Thank you, Tom right. Bruno, Sonia Wolf, contributors to the new book Mata's Gang Violence and Security in Central America. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse. We'll see you. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Travel support for this week's program supplied by the School of Communication at American University and the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, also at American University. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa hazes Gonzati, writer Lydia Bayoud, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>